0: Hello, hello. I'm just going to raise this up a bit. Steve's a bit short, so I thought I'd just, you know. Oh, now I can't do it, and he's going to have to come and help me. I'm going to feel humiliated. Oh, there we go. Am I um, doing something wrong with this? Or is that working? Just keep going, just keep going. Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I, I thought it's slightly strange, the passage I'm teaching from today, because usually when it's a difficult passage, it ends up with David, doesn't it? You know that? All those difficult passages, and unfortunately this morning one has come to me. So as we read through it, you will feel for me. Um, Fortunately, I've had a little bit of help with this. Uh, So my growth group, which is all about um, Bible reading, we do it through WhatsApp, have been brilliant. Um, So I've asked them to just have a look and give me some hints. So as I go through, I'll quote from various people. Yep, I will be quoting from you today. I'm still can just hear like I'm am I doing anything wrong? Yes, I am. Is that better? Ah. No. How about that? No? Yes. No. I think it's twisting right in. It's in the right place. Praise the Lord. Um the other thing that I notice um, is this passage today is sandwiched between two other passages that David preached from last week. So we have the passage before, which is about paying taxes to Caesar, to do with money, and the passage afterwards that's about the widow's offering, which is to do with money. And that's interesting. As I read the passage, if we can see why Luke, in his wisdom, placed this passage here. Uh, let's read it then. Uh, it should come up on the screen. It's Luke 20 and it's verse 27 to 40, which is called in my Bible, The Sadducees Ask About the Resurrection. So if you're with me, okay, verse 27. I can still hear this twanging. Is that side. I blame it on all the people sitting that side. You are obviously the holy bunch. Okay, that's brilliant. Uh, So, verse 27. They came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife... And died without children. The second and the third took her. And likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards the woman also died. Pardon? You're not surprised, thank you. (laughs) Afterwards the woman also died. Bless my wife. Um, In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as his wife. Verse 34, and Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. Interesting passage. Let's pray. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we just pray that you'd be with us this morning. Lord, you'd give us revelation. You'd give us understanding. You'd give us a passion for you, Lord God. And you'd give us encouragement for the weeks and months ahead. Lord, I pray that you do a powerful work here this morning in our hearts and minds. Lord, you'd bless us and encourage us, Lord Jesus. You'd make us more determined followers of you have more passion, more single-minded for you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so when I look at this passage, uh, I'm going to pick out five questions, i.e. five things to look at, some of which are difficult things. And the questions I had were these. From verse 27, who are the Sadducees and does that make any difference? In verse 33, it said, in the resurrection. Well, what does that mean? Is it coming up? No, I'll just keep going. Um, Verse 35 talks about worthy to attain that age. What does that mean? Verse 36, why is there no marriage in heaven? Seems strange. So what? Is there in heaven if there isn't marriage? Not that marriage is everything, but what then does that leave in heaven? And verse thirty-eight: What does "He is God of the not the God of the dead, but the God of living" mean? So those are my questions that I throw out, and uh, I will progressively answer those as I go through. I'm not going to do them one by one, although I will start with the first one because I think talking about the Sadducees kind of helps us in the context of this passage. So, on researching it, Vanessa said this. This is my growth group, love them. But she said this, she said, Luke mentions the Sadducees. None of their writings survive. So this group, we don't have any of their writings left, like some of the early Christians. We, we only have a, a, a group of the writings left, don't we? And so we only know them as their opponents saw them. Interesting group, aren't they? Well, what are they? Because we've heard about the Pharisees, and the scribes mentioned. Well, Leon Morris, in his commentary on the passage, says this. They were conservative. They were aristocratic. They were high priestly partied. They were worldly minded. And they cooperated with the Romans. Interesting bunch, aren't they? I think that mix of religious and worldly, that mixture of kind of the aristocratic, but the, you know, selling themselves out to the uh, conquering Romans. It's a funny mix, isn't it? And there's no doubt when they came for this question here, they were trying to trick Jesus, weren't they? They were talking about something that's very interesting. Let, let, Let me throw out this idea and see what you think about it. Leon Morris also says this about them. They said that they had denied the whole doctrine of the afterlife and of rewards and punishments beyond the grave. Interesting. Interesting. They're a funny bunch. Now, the next thing I'm going to say, if you don't remember anything I'm going to say from today, you'll remember this. Because they also were not a very happy bunch. Because they were sad, you see. That's for the teenagers, just to keep you going as you go through. They were, you can't shake your head. That was brilliant. They were sad, you see. They were. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Got there. Oh, finally. Brilliant. Okay. <sighs> Where are we going now? Okay. Now, all the other questions really here are something to do with the afterlife. They're to do with heaven to do with the resurrection of the dead. So this is a, a huge concept. Um, but there is one that I just would like to start with, and that's from verse 35. It, and verse 35, this, But to those who are considered worthy to attain that age. What does that mean? Considered worthy. Carrie, thank you, Carrie, said this, because we know that no one is worthy of themselves to gain eternal life. We are all sinners, i.e. have fallen short and do the wrong thing and said the wrong thing. She said this part of Jesus' answer is a little confusing. It is, isn't it? It's a little bit confusing. Jesus says people must be considered worthy in verse 35. Sorry, she said, this is just not clear. And there is a lack of clarity. So what does it mean to be worthy? Because we feel that it's nothing of ourselves that mean we are worthy to get to, he says it in inverted commas, the afterlife, don't we? That's what we believe as Christians. We believe that we are not worthy to gain eternal life. We be that we are a people who have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We haven't matched up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. But, of course, this worthiness is not our worthiness, is it? It's his worthiness that he gives us because he died and he rose again. That when we follow him, we take on his worthiness. Therefore, we are counted worthy. John chapter 17, verse 3 says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you you see, that's eternal life, isn't it? To know Jesus, to know him, the only true God. Now, it's interesting. If you were um, to talk to people in general about what a Christian is, what would they say? They would say a number of things. They would probably say somebody who goes to church, wouldn't they? This wouldn't be a church, would it? because this is a building, but there's somebody who goes to church. They might say, well, to become a Christian, you just need to give a lot of money. They might say, and I'll come a bit to my own testimony in a minute, that actually being a Christian and getting to heaven and getting to the afterlife is a bit of a balance. Yeah? You try to do more good things and try to do fewer bad things. But we know that we have a tendency to go the other way, don't we? And you try to do more good things and not bad things, but we know that we have that tendency to go the other way. And actually, it's not a balance of the good things and the bad things. No, it's believing in Jesus and deciding to follow him, turning away from our old life and following Jesus. This simple action has huge eternal consequences and this is the most decision and if if you like when you made that decision that was the time when you entered eternal life strange isn't it not when you die but it's that time when you make that commitment that you enter eternal life when we talk about these things and I'm going to talk a little bit about heaven in a minute they are sometimes difficult issues to talk about and the reason they're difficult issues to talk about is sometimes personally, we don't necessarily view it as a bit theological or an issue to think about. We do it from a personal point of view. We think about our friends and our relatives who are no longer with us. And we look at it from that, don't we? We look at it from that perspective rather than thinking, I just want to get into this topic and see what the Bible says. So I'm going to give um, a bit of a, a story now. Uh, And apologies if I get a bit emotional, but every time I talk about my dad, um, I will get emotional, but um, I'm sure you'll come with me. Um, Whenever I read about the word heaven, I always think about my dad. There he is. Um, I'm an only child, so he had a huge influence on my life. Charles, he was. There he goes. You can see, drinking in a pub, that comes in later. Now, I went away to boarding school at 13. And in my first term at boarding school, I went to a Christian union meeting. And I heard what we might call the gospel for the first time. I, it wasn't. I was one of those people that was thinking, the more I good I can do, the less bad I can do, maybe somehow I'll get to heaven That was what I was thinking, and suddenly I heard the gospel. But it's not about me, it's about him. And I just had to trust, put my trust in him. But of course, that meant I had gone away from my family and their beliefs. And I didn't realize at that time what a radical change that would mean to my life. Absolute radical change that I would no longer be the same. And actually, I would go in a very different way to the rest of my family. Now, my dad had a mixture in his life. Many people have very strange mixtures, don't they? He was brought up a very traditional Catholic, but was also a firm atheist. I don't know how it mixed, but I do know that he was absolutely certain there was no God. Absolutely certain. So when I became a Christian, I then had one of those weekends from boarding school when I met my parents, and I thought, how do I talk about this? What do I do? Now, I don't wear a cross at the moment, but that was my decision at the time, that I would wear a cross, and that suddenly, my mum, my dad would see it, and I'd be able to talk about it. I wanted to be able to tell them. And uh, I can remember my mum was sitting in the car, I think we were uh, just about to go out for a meal, and my mum spotted it, and she said, Have you become a Christian, she said. And I, I, I said, yes, yes, and, and tried to talk about it. And they, weren't, they were really not amused. They were really not happy. And they somehow felt that I'd let them down. And they somehow felt that I'd got religion. But they felt very relieved that I was a teenager, and therefore it would just be one of those things that you do as a teenager and it drifts away. Well, here I am, age 53, and it's still not drifted away. Now, I often discussed religion with my dad. I often talked about Christianity, and I can vividly remember a huge row we had in a pub. Somehow, when I was a later teenager, I thought having a couple of beers and arguing my dad would somehow make an effect, and it just didn't. It just meant we had more rows about it. But I remember being very clear about that. And he had certain decisions from his life where he would dismiss Christianity and to be fair, mock it at some stages. Somehow over the years, I think he accepted my faith more. Certainly when I got married to Andrea and he, he saw Andrea's faith and my faith, he saw, you know, that um, we weren't completely mad and wild, but that we were vaguely sane in his eyes, he began to have a bit more respect. And I don't know if this quote from him says more about him or about the respect. I can remember when I decided to get adults baptised, because of course I hadn't been, anyway, I tried to get adult baptised by full immersion. I said, look, dad, I'm going to get baptised. And you could see it was completely out of his understanding at all. It wasn't even in an Anglican church. How does it work? And he said to me, do you know what, son, you get baptised and I'll get baptised in whiskey. And that probably says a little bit about him, but also to me, it just said a little bit of an acceptance. You know, I understand you're living your life your way in in his later years discussion about god oh sorry in later years his discussion about christianity closed down and uh, he had certain stock phrases that came out you know what i mean by certain stock phrases people have just saying the same thing again and again um he definitely seen that benefit in in our life And then um, seven years ago, he lay dying in a care home. And I really wanted to be able to challenge him about Jesus for the final time. I really wanted to be able to do that. But it is difficult when people are dying because my mum just didn't want to leave him. And I didn't want to do it with her there because it would just be. And I finally got my time. My mum left. My dad was there. He was really in the last stages before death those who've been with somebody, you know what I mean? You know, he really wasn't, um, he couldn't say anything, he couldn't move, so I'd got a captive audience. Um, And I managed just to say to him, Dad, look, I really feel, it felt really odd saying it to him because he couldn't respond, I really feel this is the time. You've got to make peace with Jesus. You've just got to do it. But of course, he couldn't move. He couldn't say anything. And he died a couple of days later. And I don't know how he responded. I know how he lived his life. I don't know how he responded and I will, you know, that's part of me. You have to live with that, don't you? Why do I say this story? Not just because I knew it would um, get me emotional. No, I say that really because as we look at this passage, it's so easy to get emotional about it, isn't it? It's so easy to think about those kind of things. And what I want us to be able to do is to somehow take the emotion out of it and focus on just what the Bible says about heaven. What does it actually say? When we die, what does it say will actually happen? Where will those who have given their life to him, where will they actually go? You see, heaven can be absolutely wildly misunderstood. Even as Christians, we will sometimes say things, something like, we'll go to heaven and we'll be there forever. But uh, people may say, oh, it's about a a cloud and playing on a harp or all sorts of things. Or people may even say, well, what I've heard about your heaven is a bit boring, isn't it? There's no football. All sorts of things are said about heaven. And actually, the Bible, when it talks about heaven, it talks about it in, often in picture language. It often talks about it in hints and, and elements. It, it presents it in ways. It is not scientific. There are no formulae. There's no specific plan. Right, this is the one I'm going to say. All the detail about heaven and the, the plans of it. And so we have to take it from different places. Going back to uh, what Vanessa said about the Sadducees. The Sadducees, and many Jewish people of their time, felt if there were an afterlife, it would be something like a, reputi- a repetition of this life. In other words, it must be something like we're going through now, if there is an afterlife. Wayne Grudem says this, Christians often talk about living with their God in heaven forever, but in fact... The biblical teaching is richer than that. It tells us that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. You see, Christian teaching does not teach that when we die, we go into some sort of soul sleep. Or somehow kind of immersed in something you've seen in films where you just kind of sit there in nothingness. It doesn't teach purgatory, that suddenly you can sort out your sins in that patch of time. And what it does teach is that Christians go instantly into a place which we call heaven, awaiting the new heaven and the new earth. And sometimes the present heaven, if you're having me calling it that, to the new heaven and new earth, it's difficult to pull those apart in the Bible is which they're talking about it and all those links. But I'm going to try and talk today about this present heaven. Whether the resurrection in this passage is talking about the present heaven or the future heaven and the future earth when it's all wrapped up, I don't know. But I'm going to try and pick out those because I think they should be hugely encouraging and inspiring and they should affect our Christian walk. Okay, so the first verse, I'm going to go through five verses relatively quickly on this. Luke 23, verse 42 to 43. And this is the thief on the cross who just given his life to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. It's a funny word, isn't it? I mean, sometimes when I think of paradise, I think of going to Barbados and watching cricket. But for some other people, that would be hell, wouldn't it? But we do sometimes think of paradise. We have the idea of the paradise island. But what was actually intrinsically in this word? Well, actually, the word paradise here was a Persian word. And it was a Persian word that was often used for a walled garden. Interesting, a walled garden. Not a wild place, but a place of cultivated plants and animals. It's often a word used in the New Testament, of the Garden of Eden. Picture language here. It's beautiful. It's alive. It's colourful. And it's contained. So we've got that idea there, that picture there of a walled garden. Can you sense it? Can you, can you see that in your mind's eye? Philippians 1 verse 23 says, "'I am hard-pressed between the two. "'My di- desire is to depart to be with Christ,' For that is far better. So here we're talking about Paul. And he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling between keeping going on this earth and be- being with Christ in heaven. So it's obviously talking about this present heaven. It's where I'm going to go next. And this is here to be with Christ. Heaven is to be with him. When we get there. It won't be lots of other things we see and think about. It will be Jesus. We will no longer be seeing in part. We will see him there as he is. that we can only dream and think about. Heaven is so Jesus-centric. It's so centred on him. And this is when I think the idea of married and not married comes in. Mel said this for my growth group. Said it would not be a loss not to be married in heaven because it will be so much better. It will be so much better. And Pete said about marriage in heaven. I love this. He said, "I think that this passage is really helpful in a world that idolizes sex and relationships." I personally found it encouraging over the years because it revitalizes both marriage and singleness. Yes. Pardon? What did I say? Did I say relativizes? And I said revitalizes. I misquoted him. I'm going to read it again. I'm sorry to everybody because it relativizes both marriage and singleness. I'm never quoting from anybody else again. Not if they're here. I'll never get finished. No, that's fine. You're a great blessing, Pete. I love that quote. I think it's brilliant because it helps us just throw off the idea of marriage, doesn't it? And say, it's going to be so much better because Jesus is going to be there in all his glory. Hebrews 10, verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect we will be made perfect. What does that mean? Well, maybe that refers to our bodies as well as our souls. There's not going to be any sin in heaven, is there? So there's a sense of being made perfect in that way. And there are obviously concepts with the new heaven and new earth of no more pain and no more suffering. So that is an element of the new heaven as well, isn't it? It's the place of peace and beauty. And perfection, where we will be perfect. We're also aware of our failings, aren't we? But we won't be then. We won't be. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You know what it's like, don't you, when you've maybe been away on holiday, or certainly for me, coming back from boarding school. And suddenly you get home, and it's your home, and it feels comfortable. And you suddenly you're lying in your bed, which isn't bumpy and lumpy. It's or if it is, it's your bumps and lumps. You know what I mean? There's a sense of getting home, and there'll be a sense of heaven. Will be about going home. It will feel right and comfortable. It won't feel alien. Sometimes in this word world, we feel slightly alien, don't we? particularly with some of the things we see on the news or we hear people say. And we feel just slightly alien with it all. We feel slightly apart or distant. But when we're there, we will feel at home. And Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2, this is a a longer passage, but I love it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we here are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses let us also lie lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God so, we've got this idea here of this cloud of witnesses seeing uh, somehow around us here. How does that work? I don't know, but it means there are going to be lots of people in heaven. It's not just going to be me and you. Yeah? There's a cloud of us together, a whole crowd. Yeah? Real celebration. But there's maybe a sense in which there's a sense of time or seasons as well. There's a sense of understanding. Maybe something will go on on earth. I don't know. But there's, because we are so focused on Jesus, I don't think that's going to be something we'll think about very much. And we then have the throne of God. Jesus sitting there on the throne, exalted, worshipped, glorified. Now, I've just used some kind of picture languages, some ideas there. But does that give you an idea about where you're going? does that warm your heart? I think it does. I think it gives us that confidence, particularly in the difficult days, doesn't it? Of actually, we're headed for a better place. We're headed for a walled garden. We're headed for home. We're headed for a place where we will just be able to see Jesus as he is, where there'll be lots of us, and we won't look at our imperfections anymore because we will somehow be perfect with him. Okay, so as I kind of conclude what I've said today, what, what things can we pick up from this? And I think that as we talk of heaven, it should affect our attitudes and our feelings on earth, shouldn't it? That's why it's written in the Bible. Well, there's so much about it. There could be other verses you could pick out. But here are just a few things that I want to pick up. Some of them have already come up in the themes of the worship today. First of all, don't live like the Sadducees. Yeah? Their idea was to trick Jesus. They had good ideas. Really good intellectual thoughts. But that's not us, isn't it? We don't want to be those that deal with controversies and talk about things. We want to be those that are sold out for Jesus. Number two, prepare be prepared to answer questions. And particularly um, for those um, younger people here, you will be asked questions at school, at college, won't you? You'll be asked those questions and just be ready to answer it. Interestingly, Jesus didn't really answer their question clearly. He did a teaching through it, if you noticed. He talked about heaven He talked about all sorts of other things. He used the question of the Sadducees to open up an idea and to teach those around him. And I think sometimes when we're asked direct questions, we feel we should give a direct answer. And maybe we should, but maybe we should use that to talk about other things, to give our testimony, to talk about what really matters to us, to talk about our family and the effect that Jesus has had on them. The third one here that I know will have come up is to pray for our unsaved friends and relatives. I have been praying for my mum regularly since I was 13 and I'm going to continue to pray for her. And we need to continue. And I know around this room there'll be lots of people who have sons and daughters and maybe partners, maybe parents, maybe really close friends who don't know Jesus yet, and we really need to be praying for them. My fourth point here is living for an audience of one, really as if you have received eternal life. We can get caught up, can't we, with what we do in the world, and there can be times when we can do things similarly to other people who aren't Christians, We almost at times Christians come indistinguishable, but actually, we are people of heaven, we are those who have received eternal life, and we should be radically different and changed. It should change all our thinking. I could spend the next 20 minutes talking about the different elements of thinking that that can change, but I will just talk about one because where was this passage? It was between two passages about money. That's where Luke put it, didn't he? And therefore, our attitude to charity and giving should be transformed by the fact that we are heaven-bound. That's where we're going, to this beautiful, beautiful place. Now, as um, I was preparing this, I thought it would be really good just to pray at the end And I really sensed in my heart that it would be good just to get people to stand if you have a relative or a friend or somebody who is really on your heart who doesn't know Jesus. And that may be many of you, but I really think it would be good if that's you in a minute just to stand. And I'm just going to pray that God will break through in that situation. I know for many of you it's been many years. You know, it's been 40 praying. Yeah, of course I can. What we're going to do is I'm going to ask people to stand and they're going to be those who have been praying, who maybe have a son or a relative or a friend who doesn't know Jesus and they've been praying them for them a while. We're going to pray for breakthrough. Talked about that at the beginning, didn't we, during the worship? And we're going to do that now together, okay? Um, And I'm going to stand because I'm praying for my mum. Keep going. And if you're listening, mum, I love you very much. Okay, so if that's you, if you've got a, a